0: Hey, it's me, Colin. Before we get into this week's knockback, I want to remind you that all things Colin's Last Stand, Fireside Chats, SideQuest, Knockback, and more, are fan-funded at patreon.com slash Stand. While your patronage isn't required, it is super helpful and allows CLS to continue producing content. Supporting CLS on Patreon also gets you perks depending on your level of patronage, like exclusive podcasts, week early access to every episode of Fireside Chats and Knockback, the ability to vote on show topics, and more. If you like what CLS does, please consider showing your support. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your continued kindness and generosity. Trust me, it's not lost on me. And now, it's time for Knockback. Enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by dark knight Dagan Moriarty.
1: Hi, guys. How are you? All right. I'm doing very well, my friend, and yourself.
0: Good. This is in, if these all go up in the order that we're recording them, in which I think they will. We are recording the last episode of the run of the second season run. I don't really like calling them seasons. It really is. It really doesn't make any difference. But the yeah, second seasons. batch that we're running in batch. Okay. That's yeah, great. yeah. We're running the second batch of ten episodes. This is the last episode. I'm excited about this one. I, you know, you came up with a lot of the. Well, you basically came up with all eight of ten of the topics that we're recording right two of them were given to us by our lovely audience at patreon.com slash collins last stand those that support us at the two dollar level or higher so we appreciate those people but the other eight you came up with and i put them in order and i think that final fantasy 4 i put last because i was i think the most excited about it so you save the best for last the I best like topic it. for last nice final fantasy 4 is over the years at uh, my time at ign my time at kind of funny and just my time in the gaming industry a game i reference a lot for multiple reasons it's Certainly, I would say my, in my top 20 games of all time, I don't know that I'd put it in my top 10 games of all time. Maybe I would. Maybe it sneaks in there. But it's a game that reminds me a great deal of you and our bonding as a kid. And I've often talked about that with the audience. And I remember very clearly watching you play it. It was a game unlike I've ever seen before. And it's, it's just a really special game that I think holds up th- these many years later. It's unbelievably 27 years old. And wow, it's a very early Super Nintendo game the first Final Fantasy game on Super Nintendo. It's the second Final Fantasy game released in the United States in the core series. Obviously, we got Final Fantasy Mystical Quest a little bit later. Final Fantasy VI was released on Super Nintendo as well in the States as three. And before we get into anything, Dig, I I should make that clear, since we should lay the foundation really quick, just in case some people are confused. This is old knowledge now. This isn't forbidden knowledge anymore like it was, say, in the 90s. But for people that are confused or are not Final Fantasy fans, listen up. (laughs) Final Fantasy in Japan... Is Final Fantasy here? Final Fantasy 2 in Japan never came here until later. It only actually came here in 2003 as part of Final Fantasy Origins on PS1. Final Fantasy 3 in Japan also never came here until 2007 when it was released on the DS. So Final Fantasy 4 was released here as Final Fantasy 2. Then Final Fantasy 5 was released in Japan and was never released here until it was on Final Fantasy Anthology in 1999. And then Final Fantasy 6 was released here as Final Fantasy 3. And then from that point, all of the Final Fantasy numbers match up. So to, to reiterate, Final Fantasy IV, what we're talking about here, you might remember as Final Fantasy II on SNES. So I just want to make that clear. We're not talking about Final Fantasy II Japanese. We're not talking about you know any of that. We're talking about Final Fantasy IV. But we knew it, you and I, Yes. as Final Fantasy II. Absolutely. What are your memories of this game? This is a, this is a game... We have a lot to say about this game, so so I, I really want to just kick it to you. Let's just get right into it, and you just talk to me a little bit about your memories of it.
1: Okay. It was the first... So, Final Fantasy 2, as we knew it for this was the first... This was my very first JRPG game. I never played any of the NES Dragon Warrior games. Dragon Quest, we knew them as Dragon Warrior in the States. And I never played Final Fantasy on the NES, And actually, I I will admit, I I still haven't played Final Fantasy on the NES. Never played that game. So I had very little context of... Now, of course, I was familiar with traditional RPG. A lot of my friends were really into Dungeons & Dragons and Shadowrun as well. I never got into tabletop RPG gaming, but a lot of my friends were very into it. And their older brothers were also very into it. So I always had some kind of context. JRPG Gaming... Not at all, and the only games that I played up to this point were the first couple of Zelda games on NES, and that, as we all know, those aren't traditional JRPG games. They have more, you know, you you would consider them something different, adventure games. Yeah, like action. Yeah, like that's funny because even Nintendo would emblaze in their
0: old boxes with like you know adventure series, and what we know today as adventure games, and what we've known really as adventure games for a long time, especially on PC. Are like point and click adventure games like Monkey Island and stuff like that. We would call this game, from my perspective, or those games, Zelda, Zelda Two, action adventure, maybe, or with some role playing elements. Again, a term I absolutely hate.
1: But yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. That's yeah, tough one.
0: so yeah, it, it, we. It's funny because we used to, on console in the console space in the in the late '80s, early '90s, an adventure like an adventure game is not like that's a that's a defined game today that that means something very specific. Sure. Right. So it's funny how those genre definitions have changed. Yeah, anyway. that shifted. Yeah, that's
1: true. Yeah. So and I, I I believe I was a junior in high school when I played this game and I was talking to you about it earlier. I don't remember any hype leading up to this game. It's not like I was looking at it in the magazines and anticipating it coming out. What had happened was I think I had rented it from a video store, thinking it was akin to you know a Zelda game, and I brought it home. And I loved it. I instantly was just, it was so magnetic, and we'll get into all the reasons why. And then what had happened was, I guess I rented it once or twice, and then I was like, I'm buying this game. And it was one of the first games, as I remember, it was one of the first games I purchased for the SNES. And it is one of my favorite games of all time. It's in my top five, for sure. My the only The only SNES game I would put above it is Zelda A Link to the Past. And I love, let me preface that by saying, I love all of, I love the classic JRPGs for the SNES console. I love Chrono Trigger. I really love Secret of Mana more than most people love that game as well. And I love Final Fantasy 3 slash 6. But Final Fantasy 4 has a particularly special place in my heart. And I want to, I couldn't wait to talk about this. I I really can't wait to go into all the reasons why. Yeah, it's, 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 well, let's, let let me, let me talk a little bit just to, 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 again, let the audience
0: know in case they've never played the game. They're just listening to this out of of curiosity, what what the game's all about and kind of how we got to this point. So on the Famicom, on the NES, the Dragon Quest games, or as we knew them, the Dragon Warrior games were were dominated. And those games came out stateside, I want to say, something like 89, 90, 91, 92. So, and they came out earlier as Dragon Quest in in Japan on, on Famicom. And those games were really setting a precedent for role-playing games, but they were very traditional, very traditional games. And Dragon Quest remains very traditional to this day, with the exception of Dragon Quest Ten, which is, of course, a an MMO. But otherwise, they're, they're, they remain very true-to-form, grindy, turn-based role-playing games that have a huge audience. In fact, Dragon Quest is far bigger than Final Fantasy in Japan. So, it's to the point where they they have to sell the games on Sunday because when they were selling early Dragon Quest games on Famicom, kids would cut school to go buy them. And so, th- there was like basically a, a rule set essentially where they, you know, you have to you have to sell them on Sunday so you're not disrupting people's educations and whatnot. But Final Fantasy, from a company known as Squaresoft at the time, Squaresoft doesn't exist anymore, they're now Square Enix, when they merged with Enix, the company that made Dragon Quest, was creating its own role-playing series that was quite different, actually, from, from the Dragon Quest games in, in many ways. And they called it Final Fantasy, of course, famously, because it was it was the last-ditch effort for Squaresoft to make something that would allow them to thrive, and, and so they did. And the games differed from each other in a lot of fundamental ways. I think the... Art, in many ways, was more compelling in Final Fantasy games, both Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3, which were all NES games, or Famicom games, I should say. And also, they were, you know, 1 and 3 were job-based, which is a, a kind of a, a, a mainstay of, of many Final Fantasy games. Most famously, I think, 5 and the original, obviously. And they were, they were going in, in, in different directions. And the, the strength of Final Fantasy 4 was its story. The Dragon Quest games, the four Dragon Warrior games that we got in the United States, kind of blur together. They're, they're, they are different. You can put them in front of me and I can tell you which one's which, but they kind of blur together. Again, they're very traditional. It's not really about the story and the characters so much as it's about... It It, it appeals to OCD tendencies. It appeals to like the need to level up, the need to see what's across the bridge, very literally in Dragon Quest, because when you cross bridges in Dragon Quest, the enemies get m- more powerful. That's like one of the conventions of the early Dragon Quest games. Right. Final Fantasy was trying to do something a little different, and it had a little bit of a different flavor. And what's funny is that with Final Fantasy IV coming out in 1991 on SNES, the original Final Fantasy actually came out in the States only a year prior. So these games were were really closely tethered together, and you might remember, Dagan, that Nintendo Power was very much involved in proliferating Final Fantasy, the original Final Fantasy. So, yes, very much
1: so. V- really beautifully illustrated pages and pages, as I remember.
0: Yep, and there was some sort of giveaway or something. The same thing happened with Dragon Warrior, but... There was some sort of giveaway involved in that. And you remember when you, subscri- when you subscribe to Nintendo Power, you can often choose like one of the one-off strategy guides or yes. tip books or whatever. And so you kind of carefully choose what you wanted. And we have a few of those. I think you have a few of them over there that we got back when we were kids. Or I was a kid. So these two JRPG series were kind of rising next to each other. But Dragon Warrior in the States had much more cachet with players than Final Fantasy. It did better. To the point where there was some confusion because... The The original Final Fantasy 2, the game that I explained, didn't come to the States until actually 12 years later in Final Fantasy Origins on PlayStation 1 was actually translated and ready to go, and Square Soft at the time declined to release the game in the States. In lieu of this new SNES game that they thought would make more sense for them to release, closer to launch and give someone kind of some something, you know, give give players something to play. Because keeping in mind, of course, that Dragon Warrior at the time was relegated to the NES and to the Famicom, so the next gen players at the time would have something special to play. And the game was made by 14 people in a year, which is an incredible feat. It's unbelievable to think of that. It's a different time, of course. Whew. Games were a little simpler to make then, for sure. But 14 a team of 14 making a game the scope of Final Fantasy 4 in one year is just, is just a remarkable feat. The game was originally three times longer in terms of its text and its story. So the game itself wasn't longer, but the script was much longer, and they had to cut it. Imagine a situation where cartridge space was so limited that you had to cut text. You, you didn't even have to cut art or anything like that, or assets, because they carefully managed those in the process of making the game. They had to actually cut the script. That's how limited the room was on these, you know, these chips, on the, on the cartridges. And so came out summer nineteen ninety one in the States. Right. Squaresoft was making Final Fantasy Four and Final Fantasy V at the same time, and actually Final Fantasy IV's development started on NES or on Famicom and it was almost done. And no one's ever really seen it. I was reading that there was there's a few screenshots of it that were in like some sort of, you know, Japanese publication, but otherwise no one's ever seen it. And it's probably floating around, hopefully floating around somewhere in Squaresoft's or Square Enix's, you know, re- repositories somewhere, because that would be a real shame if that was gone. Agreed. And they they moved the game over and it it is an extraordinary title for many reasons most mostly from my perspective and i think you might agree and i'll let you i'll let you speak for yourself but mostly because it included what dragon warrior was missing because unlike you i wasn't a dragon warrior i wasn't i was young i was very young at the time i was 8 and my friend who who plays prominently in some of our stories tim his older brother chris was a big dragon warrior fan he was a big rpg nerd and he had all four Dragon Warrior games. The fourth Dragon Warrior game was not out yet, actually, at this time in the States. But those games famously came with documents, maps, these beautiful spreadsheets like of enemy pictures and stuff. And I was just obsessed with those games. And I wasn't really quite able to play them by myself yet. Which is, which is funny when you think about it, because I was beating games like Kid Icarus and Metroid and stuff by myself. But I wasn't able... To really get through these games. They were just too hard. And in fact, th- those games are so manageable. It's really funny when you think about it. Like those games, just like almost any JRPG, is easy to beat if you just take the time to grind. So yeah. these are things that I had to learn. They're really not skill-based at all, which is so funny. They're, they're, they're time-based. So what was attractive to
1: you about Final Fantasy IV? It's it's so it's so interesting, Kyle, because when you think about how quickly immersive this game is there's elements that all sort of go hand in hand and make this game an experience and i would say this game was the first game i would consider a fully immersive experience i don't think i played anything before this for any console that felt so much like I was experiencing something beside a game. It almost felt like you were experiencing a movie. And what's so unbelievable about this looking back is it was an early 16-bit game. So they already had a little more at their disposal compared to working on, you know, the Square in this case. They already had a little more at their disposal than they had working on the 8-bit platform. They had a, They had a little more colors to play with, a little more memory to play with. They could do a little more animation with the sprites the music capabilities were enhanced as compared to the 8 bit but what they did with this game to make it such an emotional experience with think about it 16 graphics early 16 bit 16 bit graphics digitized music and little chibi sprites little super deformed characters and they put so much emotion and resonance into this thing that it got you excited it got you happy it made you laugh it made you cry and the writing the writing can't be discounted either and with the writing that appears in little dialogue boxes this is this this game is as good and as well put together as the best film it's unbelievable to think what they accomplished with this game and it's the first game that I experienced like that. Of course, you can't say enough about Final Fantasy 3 and Final Fantasy VI, and we will talk about this that game on Knockback and how special that game is. But this game was the predecessor to that. And I get really moved thinking how this game put me through such emotional paces with such a simple formula. And... Really, prim- really primitive compared to what we're used to in gaming now, what we have at our disposal, and how realistic everything is, and the level of realism, and voice, o- you know, voice over acting, and the- all the audio that we're used to now. But this thing did it with just you were reading dialogue boxes with these little chibi graphics that you know looked great, but that's what they are—they're little super deformed characters, you know, set characters, and they could. They emote by doing the simplest, you know, mo- movements and motions, and of course the brilliant music, and those things blended to just make this game the most. Still to this day, one of the most special and immersive gaming experiences that I've ever had. I'm very nostalgic about it. It's true, but this game really holds up. It's it's really one of the greatest feats. I would say it's one of the one of the greatest feats in game development to this day. I mean, that's how strongly I feel about this game. And the characters, also the characters in this game are some of the most wonderful video game characters that I've ever experienced in a game. They they draw you in and make you keep playing. So what 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 are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah.
0: I think well, I want to I want to integrate some some reader comments here. Okay. As always, I tipped my, you know, tipped our cards to the subscribers on patreon.com slash Collins last stand let them know the topics ahead of time and they provided us with their questions comments concerns thoughts and memories about various things that we were talking about and a few people wanted to talk about Final Fantasy 4 Richard Strzeski I think I'm saying your name right now I'm sorry if I'm not hey Richard says I'm a JRPG dork because of Final Fantasy 4 drag and he said he kind of reiterates what you're saying Dragon Warrior never clicked with me at the time and the same can be said for the first NES Final Fantasy a few years later that and then Final Fantasy II came into my life and it was a transformative experience. Oh man, it would I if I could go back and live through that again. I feel the same way about certain games. I feel the same way about Wild Arms and a few other games. And Final Fantasy IV to me, I don't know that I feel the same way about experiencing it for the first time because what I would do when I was young, I think I was in second grade, was when everyone went to bed, I would sneak into your room and watch you play it. And and I I remember that. Like it was I wasn't a bad kid, like I wasn't a kid that you know, disobeyed my parents or did really bad things or anything. I just wasn't that wasn't my my style at all. And actually, that was the same for all four Moriarty kids. We really weren't bad kids. But that game had such a draw and such a gravity to me. And I would hear you playing it. We shared a wall in our old house, and I would hear you playing. I would hear you playing all sorts of games, but I usually could resist because I would play it the next day. But I remember because <laughs> this game was story driven. I understood that this game was there were. They, I couldn't see it again. For you to get back into what I was missing would take twenty or thirty or forty hours. So I needed to see it. That's wow, amazing. I understood that at such an early age. But you are a smart kid. And and you were, I don't know if you remember this, but you were patient. Like, you waited for me a lot of times. Not always, but you waited for me. And, and, and I experienced a lot of those, the, the game, including the ending of the game with you. When, you know, or towards the end of the game on the moon with, when you you find out that, that Golbez is really being manipulated by, um, you know, Zerimus or whatever. And it's it's one of those games that was the first of its kind. So it makes it really important. And you can look back on games like Wolfenstein being kind of the first of its kind with shooters, and it's not very good. Really, Doom was the one that refined it. And so maybe it's more akin to Doom, while you might assume that maybe Dragon Quest was the original Dragon Quest, which is a pretty crude game, but a great game, was more akin to Wolfenstein, where Doom really took it to the next level. And Final Fantasy IV did that, too, because they very intentionally wanted to take the the components of the various games that came before it, the Final Fantasy games, also admitting, by the way, that Dragon Quest Two in particular inspired them, but that the original Final Fantasy, with its with this, with this insistence on elemental crystals, which plays a huge role in Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy II was the one that introduced a story and characters, as opposed to them being avatars and kind of like nameless, just whatevers that are just getting you through the story. And three was the one that introduced, you know, a more robust job system that started in the original Final Fantasy. So this was an amalgamation of very really special stuff for them. And I think that they probably knew that they hit on something really special with the game as well. And it being an early, uh, an early Super Nintendo game, there just wasn't that much to play at the time. So right. this was really, with the exception of Super Mario World, you could easily, which is a pack-in. So obviously everyone had it at the time. You weren't really buying a Super Nintendo at that point without it. Later on, you would be able to buy a Super Nintendo without a pack-in game, or you'd be able to buy it with like Super Mario All Stars. But at this time, you were getting the game with that. So that was obviously and, and and remained one of the best games on the system. But one of the games that you really had to go out and buy, Final Fantasy II, might have been the first great game for the system. This was this was in the early months of the of the release yeah. of the console. Was this
1: game released in Japan and United North
0: America at the same time? No, same year, but a little bit earlier in Japan. No, Super right, Famicom right. came out a little bit earlier in Japan. Too, That's so. right. So more lined up with the kind of the origins of each console in their respective regions. Gotcha. And as far as I know, this game didn't come out at all in Europe uh, on on Super Nintendo. Oh. Although Nintendo wasn't you know, wasn't that big. And they did get games like Terra Enigma later on that we, you know, big RPGs that sure. we actually didn't get here ironically, which is interesting. We still haven't gotten that game, which is strange. So I think a good way to frame this conversation, Dagan, yeah. is to talk a little bit about the story, but also about the characters because you had mentioned that the characters are essential to the story and they really are. That's what final that's why when people talk about Final Fantasy Four and Final Fantasy Six often in the same breath, it's because unlike five, which had characters in a story and, and kind of a weak boss in X-Death. It was really about the jobs. When there's a job system that's interchangeable in a Final Fantasy game where you can really fuck around with that, it reduces the resonance of the story quite a bit. Sure. This game tethered jobs to characters. So they were there was a white mage. There was a fighter and a dragoon and all of those kinds of things, but they were tied to characters and their personalities. And Absolutely. that was what made it so special. So I think... We should go through the the characters and we can kind of take them one at a time. And you can talk to me about them. Sure. The main character in the game is, depending on who how you want to say it, is Cecil or Cecil. I grew up saying Cecil, but I also know that that name is often pronounced that's Cecil. That's what I said. Yeah, that's what I always said, too. So, you know, forgive us. But I, I think we should probably, st- let's just stick with Cecil. He was a dark knight in the in the beginning. He becomes a paladin later on. He's the protagonist of the game. He's the main character of the game. And to kind of set the stage for everybody, what ends up happening in the beginning of Final Fantasy IV is there's a kingdom called Baron. And Baron is led, not surprisingly, it's a totalitarian kind of monarchy. It's led by the King of Baron. And the King of Baron is going on these weird expeditions around the world with his air force, the mighty Red Wings, they're called. And the Red Wings are led by Cecil, the Dark Knight. And... In the beginning of the game, they end up in a town called Mysidia, which you go to later in the game. It ends up being a really important town with two really important characters, my favorite characters in the game. And they are stealing their crystal. Now, the crystals, these powerful magical crystals, are, are spread around the world. And many of them are protected by these individual kingdoms or towns. And they're spread around to kind of limit their power with each other because the way they interact with each other can cause massive devastation. And the King of Barons seems ins- insistent on getting these things, but no one really knows why. And after they go to Messidia and wipe a lot of people out there, Cecil comes back, or Cecil comes back, and, and, and basically questions his orders, and questions what he's doing, and he questions it very openly. And the King of Barons not having any of this. And so he basically demotes him. And instead of Giving him, you know, lead of the air force like he had, he hands the lead of the air force ultimately over to a character named Golbez, who you're going to learn a little bit about in, in just a moment. Instead, he he sends him out with his friend Kane. Kane is a dragoon, and dragoons in Final Fantasy lore are basically lance wielding characters that have a, an ability called jump, where they leave battle and then come back with devastating force a turn or two later and, and attack the enemy. And they go and they walk to a town called Mist. And the king sends them to the mist with a box, and in the box is a ring. And they don't really know why they're, they're going to deliver this ring. They don't really think about it. They're kind of, you know, Cain and, and Cecil being childhood friends, kind of griping with each other. And Cecil's kind of feeling bad for himself. And lo and behold, they go to mist and deliver this ring, and out come a bunch of monsters. And the monsters wipe this town out. And the town happens to be full of summoners. And the summoners use these things called summons, what we later know as eidolons. In Final Fantasy lore. And what happens is that the Eidolons are intimately connected to the to the summoner. So they end up fighting. The first boss fight in the game of consequence is against this dragon. The summoned dragon. And they kill the dragon. But it ends up killing the woman that summoned it. And it happens that the woman has a small child. A daughter named Rydia. And Rydia t- summons a, a summon called an Eidolon called Titan. And Titan causes Earthquake. An attack called Earthquake. And this splits Kane up from Cecil, and Cecil is now with this little girl named Rydia, and so the story goes from that point on. So, who, do, who is Cecil to you, and why is he so important? Because his whole arc, of course, is a one of transformation, one of self-reflection and change. Sure. Making him easily, in my opinion, one of the great protagonists in Final Fantasy. Everyone always talks about, you know, Cloud and Squall and and Titus, and I'm like, get the hell out of here, man. Yeah. He is he is a way more dynamic character, and like you said, a way more dynamic character with just text on the screen, these very crude early SNES 16-bit sprites. You can really see how far they come when you get to Final Fantasy VI, which is on the same hardware and how much better it looks. But anyway, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I always I always love Cecil. He's one of those characters, you already did a great job explaining who he is. He is the main protagonist, and you're following him through the story, and he's presented very early on as you know he's the captain of this powerful force fighting force and he's got a he's got a million soldiers and he's he's the leader of them and he's got this you know he's got this squadron of machines at his disposal and he works directly for the king and even though he's presented to have great power in the beginning he's He's already initially already when we first meet him, pretty much already questioning what's what's happening and whether it's what he's doing is right or not. So you already know this character has a moral compass, even though if, even though he might be brushing it to the side initially. And he's he's very very he's a very compelling character to lead you through the story. You want to know what happens through his interactions with people through it, through. It, his early interactions with the king and through his interactions with his best friend Kane you you learn about him very quickly and who he is and you know it's also just to give you guys some perspective from my point of view as i especially as i reflect on it now these characters were so well fleshed out and so well developed and we were coming off games even even the the more adventurous rpg-ish games that i had played like the zelda games, the grind-based games, the games where you were going on an adventure on a quest like link. link was a player surrogate, but he wasn't anybody, you know, just like the link we know today, he's not a fleshed-out character. He's a mascot. Right, he's an avatar. He's an avatar. He's kind of your he's kind of you in the game these were this was the first time and like Colin saying even the earlier role-playing games that were job-based and everything that sort of waters down a character you're playing as a you're almost playing as an entity who's a you this character is a dark mage now I'm going to turn him into a you know now I'm going to turn him into a fighter now I'm going to turn him into a healer now I'm going to turn him into you know whatever else whatever other job a thief this was the characters were who they were like Colin was saying and you know, this guy's a knight, somebody's a healer, somebody's a ninja. So, you know, there it lends to, it's more about the character rather than how I'm going to soup up this character. And the other thing, really funny thing, this was the first time, not the last time, but certainly the first time where I felt like I wanted to take care of the characters in a weird way. I wanted to make sure they were equipped with the best weapons. I wanted to make sure they were equipped with the best armor. I wanted to put them in, into a position where they weren't going to get hurt. Because these characters you fall in love with, especially Cecil. And that was my first. That was the first time I was like, wow, I'm, I, I really love this character and I want to see him through. Rather than rather than with a with the Zelda an earlier Zelda game say, you know I want to see this through because it's an adventure and I want to see what comes next and what boss comes next and what treasure I could obtain next. This was I want to see what happens, how this character makes out and make sure he I could safely see him through to the end. I don't know if that sounds sappy, but I really did feel that way well, inherently y- I think you're right no I, I it's it's hard to explain
0: through the modern lens where. We take for granted that even if the story or the characters are bad, that there's a story or there are characters, because you're absolutely right. the The interesting games that actually told stories were games that you wouldn't have expected. Like back in the day, like Ninja Gaiden is a great example. Ninja Gaiden really emphasized their stories in those three games on NES, even though they're side scrollers. Like there are literally hundreds of side scrollers on NES. But they're the ones that took the time to tell a story. Yeah. And the games that you would expect would tell stories by modern standards, like the role-playing games, were not super obsessed with doing that because you were really... That appealed to a certain kind of, I think, very nerdy player like me, or like my my friend Tim, Tim's brother, Chris, Like, where you you just want to see what's around the bend, what the new enemies are. You want to get to the end and kind of have gone through this this triumph because these games were so much longer than the standard game at the time. And Final Fantasy IV, removing the, the avatar-like approach to it that we were so used to in many of these games, like-minded games, meant that you weren't playing the game just to get to the end or just to get around the bend or just to see what was next. You really were interested in seeing what was next because characters in the game had a story to actually tell you. They had dialogue to actually speak. They had interactions with one another. And unlike later Final Fantasy games, particularly six, where there's a huge cast where you can kind of interchange characters pretty often and actually not even have certain characters in your party and not even meet certain characters. There are missable characters, two of them in Final Fantasy VI, in Yamaru and Goga. This was like you met characters when you were supposed to meet them. They were in the party when they were supposed to be in the party. And everything was very deliberately delivered. And that was that was something that was new and exciting. So I agree with you. Like Immediately when you start playing the game, immediately when you meet the Red Wings and the Air Force and you meet Cecil and you meet Kane and you meet the King... And you meet Rydia and all this kind of shit starts going off. This is really in the first hour of the game, 90 minutes in the game, if you want to grind a little bit, get some equipment, you're you're locked in. I, I can't imagine a person who loves video games and specifically the who likes Japanese role-playing games or story-driven games wouldn't be immediately drawn in. It's beautiful. It's it it, it it is. It's wonderful. And what do you think of his transition? I don't want to get too far ahead because I don't want to yeah. go, I don't want to really go through the whole story. The, 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 the honest truth is that the game is story-driven, but it's really character-driven in its story. Definitely. The general idea is that there's an evil force, Golbez, this character, who you find out is actually being manipulated himself by Zemus, Zeromus. Uh, later you find out this is, like, true form. He's trying to collect the crystals to destroy the planet. So there's not really, like, this... So he's he's slowly gathering these elemental crystals. So we don't have to go through, like, beat for beat the story because it's literally, like, you're always a step behind. Sure. And and so it's not, like, the deepest story. That's why I, one of the reasons why I think Six is actually better because Six has a much deeper and meatier story on a beat by beat basis. But that's That's like neither here nor there. What do you think about his transition? Because the interesting thing about Cecil with this being a job based game is he's the only person in the game whose job changes. And that's not something you can do in Final Fantasy one. You can change jobs whenever the same thing with Final Fantasy three. Actually, you know, you're really the interesting thing about Final Fantasy one is you're really locked into your job. You change, you have an advanced kind of level of that job later on. I should be clear about that. Sure, but in many of the games like Final Fantasy V that came later, you were you would able you you could be a ranger one minute, a ninja the next minute, and a you know a hunter or whatever, and a you know a knight whatever the case might be, onion knight whatever. This game took the protagonist and changes him, and he ends up becoming a paladin. He was a dark knight. He he climbs climbs a place called Mount Ordeals and becomes a paladin. And what's cool about it is it resets him to level one, which is like one of my favorite things in the game. So you know obviously you're leveling up, becoming stronger, and then it removes all of his power. And so what do you think about that transition? Because he's a really dynamic character.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's so innovative. Like we said, as soon as you meet Cecil, not as soon as you meet him, but as soon as he expresses some reservation and some regret over what he's doing, and you find out, wow, this this badass fighter who's, you know, basically just going and raiding kingdoms and working on behalf of the king and carrying, you know, just mindlessly, you know, you know his job is to just carry almost like an automaton just carry out the king's orders and make sure he wins in battle as soon as he expresses his first reservation about what he's doing that's it you're rooting for him and you know he's not exactly he you know he's not suited to what he's doing or his heart's not his heart's different than the thing the task that he's carrying out so when he finds out that in order to i don't know how much we want to give away right now but when we find out in order to defeat who he has to defeat, he has to go on his, this quest and become a paladin. It's like, wow, this guy's, which is pretty early in the game as well. Yeah, I want to say it's like maybe a third of the way. Maybe, yeah, maybe not even quite. Yeah, like it's, yeah, a, it's a, third a transition,
0: and it and it radically changes him. His his whole, you know, Final Fantasy games are famous for when you go to the menus, you see these really beautiful renditions, pixelated renditions of their faces, and it's always like your best glimpse into who they are because of the chibi nature of the. Of the of the sprites, and, and in the beginning, he's just he he's just a knight, like a fa- you don't see his face at all. He's got like this this sheen black armor on, and when he and afterwards, you see his hair, you see his face. He's like a person, and he's light, you know. Yeah. L- like I think that he's very bright and airy uh, to make that sort of juxtaposition.
1: Absolutely, he's like the physical embodiment. Now it's like like Colin saying, he's the physical embodiment of what he's become now, and that that those physical features are just playing that up from a from a standpoint that we could actually look at. But what it means is the character went from a dark night. He went from being a bad guy to being a good guy. And that was how they expressed that in the game. But there's so much there's so much at stake, not only for him but the rest of the characters and there's such it seems pretty dire and it seems pretty It seems like it's going to be a tough road ahead. So you're wondering if this transition is going to work out for this character, at least for me. It seems really nice that, you know, it's not that this seems almost like what happened the third of the way through the game is what happens. Usually a character's arc through an entire thing. So it's very unique that this arc takes place in the first third, not even half of the game and now it's almost like now the journey really begins and there's other things going on with other characters and his and his party and some of the other characters that this story is following but that when that starts over from square once you know it's almost like the story is starting over and now you're invested in a whole new thing and that was a really unique formula for a game you know we're coming off of Mario and Link and you know this was like really the first st- character-based thing where we were so invested in what was going to happen to Cecil and his friends and these other people. And, you know, it's not just Cecil. This game, I wrote this down because it really struck me as I was thinking about it. This game, this is everything this game has in it. In the first hour, I would say, or two hours. Courage, betrayal, friendship, death, love, hope, revenge, sympathy, strength, compassion, change, forgiveness. I mean, this game has like... This game is an emotional roller coaster. It's so brilliantly put together. You know, and it start it's when Cecil becomes a paladin, that's you're already it's already like pushed to fifth gear. Now it's like in sixth. Now it's it's going back to first gear and you're starting all over again and you know you know you have so much to go. You know, and it it just felt so compelling and it just pushed it was like that first event in the game that really you know, you you thought you were like you're like breathless at that point. You're like, well, oh, I'm, th- I'm, I'm the third way done. Let's see where it goes. And you're not. You're starting over now from square one. You know, you said it perfectly. You're
0: right. And it's it's you're right. It, it does evoke emo- the fact that it evoke emo- evokes emotion at all is really remarkable for a game that was released in 1991 made in a year by 14 people. But the fact that it evo- it evokes all of those emotions and many more. Sometimes they conflict, they change. The way you feel about characters changes. That's why I want to talk about Kane next. Cain yes. is, as we said, Cecil's best friend. And th- Cecil, Kane and a character named Rosa, who we'll talk about in a minute, are locked in a love triangle. So there's there's immediately this, this tension between everyone. They all know each other since they were kids. And Rosa's always kind of been attracted more towards Cecil. They end up, you know... Getting married and 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 whatnot, you, you they're they're together at the end. And actually, if you, I don't want to I don't want to talk about Final Fantasy IV Interlude or Final Fantasy IV The After Years mm-hmm. here. The After Years are very divisive. I don't think that they were nearly as bad as a lot of people think they were. But in that, you find out that they have a kid named Seidore and and all of that. I don't. That's not really relevant to this conversation. But needless to say, Kane's kind of always the character that's watching from the outside, watching someone that he really cares about in Cecil kind of winning the girl. He's the one that's kind of, you know, Kane's like a lackey compared to to Cecil professionally, which is why he's sent out with Kane to to, to deliver the ring to to Mist in the beginning. And he's a dragoon, so like I said earlier, he's kind of like he's equipped with the lance, he has this beautiful armor. In fact, if you look at a lot of the Final Fantasy IV logos that have kind of been manufactured over the years, he's often the character in it. It's not even Cecil usually. So you see this character in this armor holding like this stat, like this 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 lance and that's that's Kane. And Kane is an interesting character in the sense that he frustrates the player. And I certainly find him super annoying. He betrays Cecil and the party yeah. many times throughout the game. And you find out that he is being controlled too, that he's under the same spell, Golbez's spell, through Z- through Zemus and Zeramis, that's controlling the King of Baron. But you don't really know it. He he At weird and inopportune times, he'll turn his back on the party and disappear for a long period of time and then come back and so on and so forth. Kind of stressing Dagan's motif of that he mentioned of forgiveness because the party keeps welcoming him back in, and ultimately he actually proves really essential to the party's success at the end. But I liked Kane for the jump command, which I mentioned earlier. The idea is that you know jump is uh, is a mainstay for dragoons in future Final Fantasy games, specifically with the dragoon kind of job, and it takes you out of the battle for a little while, only to reemerge. So it actually protects. The player from being attacked for a little while but it also takes him out of of commission to attack and then he appears like lands on top of the character then bounces back into position so he's a really dynamic and interesting character but essential to the story he's he's almost in a way his own the the game's more most immediate antagonist because you don't see Golbez that much and when you see Golbez he he usually fucks things up and, and makes things way worse for you but Kane is the immediate representation of the danger in the game, even when you think you're far away from the danger or overcoming the danger. So he's the yin to Cecil's yang in a lot of ways. And I really like him for that reason. Rosa, who I mentioned earlier is the fe- the most important and pertinent female character in the game and she's a white mage she's also an archer so she has like some offensive capabilities you can keep her in the back row this is the game that introduces and we'll get into the combat and all that but this is the game that introduces kind of the row system where you can put your mages in the back row to protect them from physical attacks it doesn't affect their ability to cast magic and but if you attack physically from that area then you do less damage so there's a little bit of a strategy there and Rosa, like I said, is caught in this love triangle, but doesn't really care about Kane. She's all about she's all about Cecil. And when you meet her, she's sick and she's kind of she needs like some help. She's kind of a more of a damsel in distress, but actually quite a strong character in her own right. So that really establishes the triangle at the, you know, the kind of the, the triumvirate, as it were, of characters that are most important to the game, I think, and the most important to the game's story. But the next character you meet after that is well, actually, you really meet this character first and she plays less of a role in the beginning and she really tugs at your heartstrings is is Rydia, Ridia when you meet her is a little girl and she's in that town of Mist she's a summoner and she's nearly killed by her own summon when she when she attacks Cecil for killing everyone she loves and destroying her hometown. And Cecil obviously nurses her back to health and helps kind of take care of her and she obviously and ends up being befriended. What do you think of her character not only as a device for the plot but but as a as a character who can do massive amounts of damage. This little unassuming girl that can summon these mass monsters that only she can control. They listen only to her. Yeah. And they appear and and can devastate enemy parties. I
1: love that. That her character probably had the most impact on me as as an artist and as a designer and really she captured my imagination because that's the one of the coolest juxtapositions for me. She's like this little girl and she's summoning these like gigantic beasts to fight for her and protect her. There's something that so that I love about that so much that I've always wanted to make a cartoon based on that. Not based on Rydia, but based on that idea of like a small, seemingly hopeless character with this power to, you know, manifest these giant things that protect her and guide her and fight for her or him. I loved it. I was aud- and it's the first game I ever played. I don't know if it's the first video game where there was a summoner character, but that whole idea of summoning different mo- different monsters and different elemental beasts with various elemental powers and stuff that was like really like so cool to me and that they could upgrade and get stronger as she gets stronger and i liked i really liked her appearance with the you know she re- she looked fun and yeah she's the first character that breaks your heart because she's the only survivor of what happens in Cecil. Cecil sort of rescues her and that's another thing where I'm talking about forgiveness you know she joins the party and they he she they decimated everything she knew I mean they did it inadvertently but that was so nefarious that whole thing with the king sending them out you know how dare you question me now you're gonna go do this thing it was like what is hap- I mean the, fir- the first hour of this game like Colin said if the first hour of this game doesn't suck you in it's like it's amazing what this game is capable of. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And Rydia, yeah, Rydia was one of my favorite characters. Yeah, for sure. She
0: is the only character in the game other than Cecil that changes. And that's the other thing I like about her, too. Rydia is a little girl when you meet her. And then at some point she goes to the land of the summons where she's very much at home. It's a very creepy place. It's also a place, ironically and interestingly, where you can really grind levels. There's a really easy way to manipulate the game in this point because there are enemies that you're fighting that are summoners. So as long as you don't attack the summoners themselves and don't kill them, they'll just keep summoning enemies over and over again. So I don't you can, know if I knew this. So you can, keep, so you can literally stay in a battle for like two hours and just keep attacking the summons, and then you can leave, and then you just level up like ten times. It's a really interesting way to manipulate the game. That's cool. But... There's a time manipulation sense like kind of thing going on in and and this is kind of interesting, it's a sci-fi element of the game almost. The Land of the Summons time moves quicker than the time in the real world on the blue planet, as they often call it in the game. And so when you find her again, she's an adult. So she's aged like ten or twelve years when so you meet cool. her again. So everything about her changes: her sprite changes, the the you know aforementioned image in the menu screen changes, and so other than Cecil, who goes from Dark Knight to Paladin, she stays a Summoner, but she becomes an adult dur- throughout this time. And it's a weird—I don't really even know what purpose that serves for the story. That might be one of the things that's lost in the you know three fourths of the game that was cut in terms of text dialogue. Yeah. But she's one of the only characters that, that changes
1: and I really love her. You lose her for a little while. Yeah. yeah she who y- replaces her in the part? Not that we not we haven't gotten that far yet, but I'm just wondering why they I think would- this is around the time when you're dealing with Tella and Edward. Yeah, Edward, right. Okay.
0: So let's talk about Tella. Okay. One, one of the-, the tragic figures in all Final Fantasy and games. And one of my favorites. Tella is what they call a sage. Tella has command, a rare command, although there's two characters that can do this in the game. We'll talk about Fusoyo later, who can who can do who also has a similar and actually is way more powerful than him. But Tella is an old man, like an old man who's like not really interested in getting involved in anything anymore. And he's kind of just like, you know, living out his last days, not fighting. He's like forgetting his magic. He doesn't he's not as powerful as he used to be. But as a sage, he has command over both white and black magic. So while you have a character like Rosa or Porum that can use white magic only and Palum can only use black magic and twin magic, he can use all of it. And he actually knows a spell called Meteor. It's called a Medio in the original translation. That he doesn't have enough MP. No matter how much you level him up, he can't. He doesn't have enough MP, which requires 99 MP for him to use the spell. And that's because it's a plot device later. But Tella and en- enters the story because his daughter Anna is involved with this near this prince of a nearby kingdom called Edward. And Edward is this like very attractive ladies' man sort of character, a bard. He plays a harp. And he's, he's kind of like seduced Anna. He's not a bad guy, but Tella is concerned about this. And the Red Wings attack Edward's kingdom and kill Anna. They don't mean to do that, but they kill a lot of people. But Anna is one of the fa- fatalities. And, and Tella ultimately really holds this against Edward and all of this kind of stuff, which is really sad for Edward. And we'll talk about him in a minute because he's obviously the worst character in the game. Yeah. But the sad thing about Tella is there's a few characters in the game that seem like they die. And they ultimately don't, and I, I don't understand why they don't, I, other than the, the the fact that they there's a hesitance to kill anyone. But people often talk about Aeris's death in Final Fantasy VII as this very meaningful and poignant death, and it is. Again, as I said in a previous episode, I recently played through all of Final Fantasy VII and platinumed it, and that is a powerful thing when she dies. It's yeah, very sad. Very it's sad. very, very sad. But Tella was the first death of consequence in Final Fantasy, not Aeris. And Tella... Sacrifices himself in a fight by casting meteor on Golbez, and the party is really quite concerned about him doing this. They don't want him to commit, you know, to cast a spell that he barely knows how to use, and he doesn't really have the power in him to even cast it at all. And he sacrifices himself. And unlike the deaths that you think happen in other in the rest of the game, he actually does die. And it talking about the emotion that Dagan was mentioning with the game the, the all of these conflicting emotions often the sadness the happiness whatever this is a very sad moment when Tella dies you don't really get to know him for that long this yeah. happens this happens relatively quickly in the grand scheme of the game
1: and he's there and then he's not how do you feel about Tella I love Tella. Now, when you first meet Tella, my mistake, because it's been a little while since I played it. Of course, it's so, this game is so fresh in my memory because it's so important to me and I've played through it a few, at least a few times from beginning to end. But it's been a while. When, when you first meet Tella, isn't he presented as sort of a, you know, sort of a dim-witted, blundering type? You know, like magician with like maybe you see there's a latent power underneath that he's not He's not telling, he's not, there's more to him than he's coming across as.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a, I wouldn't call him bumbling, but I would, I, from my perspective, but I would say there's like a passivity, like he doesn't want to be bothered. He's over this. Like he doesn't, he doesn't fight anymore. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He's only getting involved because of his daughter. Right. You know, like he's
1: otherwise totally resigned to living his life out. Right. And he's after her for the eloping bit. But then eventually the Red Wings come and kill or seemingly kill him anna and edward don't they and he's exacting revenge he's going after Golbez for revenge
0: right he kills anna edward survives okay and yeah he's yeah there's there's a a level of revenge because we have to remember that i mentioned it earlier but Golbez, as a character is the replacement for cecil at the head of the red wing so he's like the commander now of of the air force okay working alongside the king of baron and we don't realize at this point in the story that the king of baron is under Golbez's control, and again, this goes this this control, this mind control goes many layers deep because Golbez himself is under control. So Tella's involvement in the quest has very little to do with the quest itself and the crystals and stuff like that. Edward's kingdom is under assault by you know because they want the crystal in Edward's kingdom. I think it's called Damsian. Yes, but yes, Tella is a little more disconnected from the main through line because it's it's he's he's only there. Well, he's not only there for this, but he's primarily there to introduce you to Edward and to introduce you to that particular arc to get you to the next, kind of the next act.
1: Right, that's true. Yeah. But he And he's got his own, like you said, he's got his own personal skin in the game. Right. He's got his own personal agenda and his own stake in it. In, right, in right. And everything.
0: And he's willing to sacrifice himself. And he does, again, unlike other characters that seemingly sacrifice themselves to the party. And I wish that there was a little more permanent death in the game because I think that would have been bold. but Definitely. But...
1: But you think there is for a pretty big Really, really until the end. Yeah. With so, two which, characters in particular. Which yeah. really is an emotional thing, and we'll talk more about that with some other characters, of course. But yeah, and it was was Talon also, it was sort of like he was known, What did he have some kind of notoriety and so, sort of fame in the kingdom already? Like, oh, this is this legendary sage, but he was just not willing to... He he was not that guy anymore, right? Yeah, there's there's an insinuation there, yeah. right? Like, oh my gosh, the legendary. So that that's also sad, and you know, also a, you know, also maybe a comment on, and I wouldn't pa- put it past this game because it's a, it does a lot of these things. A comment on aging, and a con, you know, a comment on you know throwing your hands up and not using your power to to do good just because you're tired, you know. Um, but I always love the character, and I love. I thought that, well, I'll, we'll get to this later because I don't want to ruin it. But there, there's another layer to this character that I'm thinking, if I'm remembering, remembering it correctly. But yeah, very, very, very sad. This whole part of the game surrounding Tella and his daughter and the tragedy that takes place and the self-sacrifice that takes place in the revenge. Area, its very emot- There's a lot of emotional resonance with what's happening in this part of the game. And I remember it very succinctly you know, the music. I mean, I guess we should talk about, we should talk a little bit about the music.
0: We should talk a lot about the music. Yeah. I, I mean, want to talk, I want to, I want to get through the characters, and then talk about the music and, okay, the, and the fighting and kind of the, the, the legacy of it. Okay. Okay. But I want to make sure we get through the characters first, just to, just, again, just to frame the story, just to frame, we can frame the story in this way. Sure. Sure. Edward is w- who we mentioned before the love interest, the fiance of Anna, who's Tella's uh, daughter. And Edward is a bard and he's also a prince. Right. And Edward is a coward in a lot of ways. Now, he has a redemptive arc. He has a huge redemptive arc, actually, in the after, in the uh, in the in the you know the after years, whatever they call it, the, the the kind of the sequel to Final Fantasy IV that comes to WiiWare in 2009 and is on PSP in 2011. But Edward is a character that's not in the party very much. You don't really get to use him all that much. He he plays a specific role against this dark elf character where the music kind of weakens the character, so the end, so the party can kill him. But he fights with a harp, and he has a. So everyone has kind of a special attack or a special ability, and his special ability actually is to hide. He hides from battle, and there's a there's a uselessness to him. And what I like about the game is that, unlike Final Fantasy VI, where you kind of can use whatever characters you want for the most part, the game forces you to use whatever combination of characters that they want you to use for the story at the time. And so you're forced to use Edward. You're forced to figure out how to use him for a little while, and. And it, it it shows a different level to the party where this is kind of an unwilling combatant and someone who really who has a lot of guilt who is not a bad person but the, but is not up to the challenge necessarily and is better suited to be doing to, to be serving the mission in a in a different way and so Edward is often considered the least favorite of many people in terms in terms of the playable characters yeah mean. yeah definitely. The next character that I want to talk about is is Yang, or Yang, depending on how you want to say it. He's a monk, and he's a, basically a martial artist. And he appears about halfway through the game or so, maybe a little less than that. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's about right, I think.
0: He comes from a kingdom called Fabul, if I remember correctly. And
1: that's right.
0: He is an interesting kind of wise character he's not necessarily older he reminds me a lot of Cyan in final fantasy 6 where he's kind of like a grounding influence for the rest of the characters around him and he's the first of several characters in the game that appears to die and then is later revived he's more in a coma in fact his wife in the game wakes him up with a frying pan by hitting him over that with a frying pan <laughs> do you have any recollection of him in terms of like how you feel about him he's a powerful combatant yeah and
1: and a character that everyone in the party seems to respect and kind of defer to. Yeah, I li- I really loved the warrior monk thing. I had never seen that or, or in a, in a game and I had never se- I was not expecting a martial artist in a role-playing game. So that was really really neat to me. I remember that really really being a striking thing like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's a, fight, a martial arts fighter and a monk." That was just a you know, cuz you're expecting the traditional tropes a wizard a thief an elf a dwarf a knight you know a, a you know a healer whatever you know even a bard and stuff like that but the martial artist thing was so cool and it, it it was so indicative of what the final fantasy series would go on and do and put different elements and sort of turn fantasy on its head as it were with cyberpunk elements with 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 mech and, and tech elements with steampunk all these kind of cool things that the final fantasy series went on to do and integrate into it and sort of merge different genres and this was like that yang i always called them yang yang was one of the first characters that i could remember doing that it was unexpected and made it really and there's another character that we'll talk about later who was another one that was like whoa that i can't believe this one of those things that just makes the game even better
0: yeah, the only reason I, I I think I call them Yang too, but the, in in Chinese, for instance, this is a Japanese game, but in Chinese, um, Wang is Wang. So I was just maybe assuming. Oh, that's that maybe, true. You know, maybe maybe it's, maybe point. it is Yang. I don't know, but that's I call very, I always call them Yang as that's well. That's Very thoughtful. Next up, I want to talk about two characters that are interrelated with one another. My favorite characters in any Final Fantasy game. These, these are characters I hold very near and dear to my heart. They're amazing characters. Porum and Palum. Yes. Porum and Palum are twins. They're five years old in the game. And is that how old they're yeah, supposed to they're be? Yeah, they're five. I did not know that. And they're these little kids. They work together. They're, they, they're, they're twins. Porum is the girl and Palum is the boy. And what I like about them so much is that you could you could a sense in a story with a lazier writer and a lazier team that these guys would kind of have one, one shared outlook one shared personality and one shared kind of directive but they're two you even though they're always working together, they're always in the well not always actually they do are in the party separately at at certain points but they are they're they're a tandem and porum is kind of like the good they're both good but porum is kind of like the good and reasonable one and palum's kind of like a dickhead (laughs) and porum uses white magic and palum uses black magic and They together can use this thing called twin magic, which is, like, really powerful magic, where they cast at the same time. And we'll talk about the battle system when we're done talking about the characters, but what I love when they... There's a cool animation in the game that's very underrated. When someone casts magic, they pray. Yes. And so, like, when Rose is casting, casting, you know, Cure 2 or whatever... She like looks down and puts her hands together and you can see her like moving her like her mouth's moving, and then she like l- like looks up and puts her hands up and like cures whatever. And they do the same thing, and it's so it's so cute. They are these unassuming characters that are actually spent sent out by, you know, they're from a town called Missidia, which is the town you see in the beginning that's devastated by the Red Wings. So they don't trust Cecil when they meet him. And the the one of the few NPCs, non-playable characters in the game that matter is the the elder of Missidia, who sends poor Mapalum out. To spy on Cecil, and they end up befriending each other and stuff like that. And these little kids end up being these powerful mages that help the party a great deal in their quest. And they're also characters that seem to commit suicide during the game Ugh. to save the party. There's a point in the game where you're in a castle and the walls are closing in on the party, and it looks like it's game over for everyone. If the, the walls are closing in, they're gonna smush everyone. And poor and Pal, without without missing a beat, cast stone on themselves. And create two concrete blocks basically
1: out of their bodies that stop the walls from closing. Oh my god! So I cried. That might be the first time I ever cried at a video game.
0: And what I remember about it, Dagan, that's so striking is that the music stops.
1: That's there's right. like
0: there's like they're, they're, like no one can believe that these kids just did that. Especially especially frankly Palum, who doesn't seem to have doesn't really seem to even like half the, half of them, and he's very snarky. Yeah, he's like snarky and rude. And then without, a, without a, a moment's hesitation, mostly because I think he defers to his sister. Like, he seems to respect Purim, and Purim seems to kind of be the leader of the two. Yeah, definitely. And they kind of just decide immediately, like, let's just cast a spell on ourselves, and they do it. And you find out only at the end of the game that they're alive. And that was one of the things that I kind of pretend in a lot, when I even when I talk about the game or when I think about it, I pretend that they just die. And if it wasn't for the after years, you, they you could kind of get away with that. They're yeah. they, they're pretty integral parts of the after years, so so they're not dead. But,
1: but I think wish they that are I, for a long time. Yeah, they,
0: you think they are until the end. Yeah, that they just totally straight up off themselves to, is, to save everyone. Heartbreaking. It's the it's the greatest moment in the game. It and, really is. And I I again I don't know is it because they're children they didn't want to kill them. See the same thing happens with Yang. Like Yang is kind of revived as yeah. well. So I don't know that it's necessarily about them being kids, but maybe it is. But I think it's more of this hesitance to kill anything off. And I wonder if that's maybe why they were more likely to kill. You know, you can kill Shadow in Final Fantasy VI, and Eris obviously dies in Final Fantasy VII. So there was more of a willingness to do it later. Yeah. But I loved the fact that these young young children, these little kids, younger than your son.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: I didn't realize that they were that young
1: either until I read about it. I thought thought they were like eight or something like that. I knew knew they were very young, but I didn't know that they were five. Yeah, It's crazy. And I love the fact that you brought up the music stopping thing because that's what this game does. This game utilizes whatever seemingly, I mean, especially in retrospect, primitive tools it has at its disposal to translate and prescribe emotion. And we all know what the stopping... You said it perfectly. We all know what the stopping of the music meant. It meant that the characters were breathless in that moment of like what, what just happened? I can't believe what just happened. And also, I think we grieve for Porham and Palum because they are they're really when we meet them until we lose them. They are the comic relief of the game. They're as as I remember it. They're bickering. Well, well, I should say Porham is very sweet and Palum is very snarky. And there's a comedy because they're twins and they're so, and you already know one's the white magician and one's the black magician. One does white magic and one does black magic and there's, but their, and their personalities are also very opposite and there's a real sweetness. And I love what you said too, about it being cute. You know, the, you were specifically talking about casting spells, but there is a real cuteness and appeal to the visuals of this game too. And I think that's an extra hook. It's very, very appealing. It's very appealing, and that's a big part of what, what makes the game work.
0: I agree, and yeah, there, there Porim is often keeping, you know, to, to the comedic kind of element of it, Porham often bashes Pilem in the head with she's her staff. She's yeah. yeah, like she's always like, <laughs> it's like a boop, you know, like on his head when he says or does something stupid, where he's kind of like, he kind of defers to her, you know, in a way. There is a there's a, there is a cuteness there. There is, I love their portraits in the game. Yeah, they're very cool. And I love that they're twins. There there really are no characters like them that are, you know, when you think about Final Fantasy, specifically the story-driven Final Fantasy games, like, you know, four, six, and then seven, eight, nine, 10. yeah. There's there's no characters that are as interlinked in that sort of familial way. Like they are. Until maybe Edgar and and Sabin in Final Fantasy VI, they are brothers, but they they can they're independent of each other. You meet one before you meet the other and stuff like that. And 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 so you know and there's an interesting story there with Edgar where he's kind of like the king and Sabin's kind of like the cast off like he doesn't want anything to do with the right. royalty so they're different too in that respect so maybe there's a there's a parallel there but I always loved Purim and Palom and as I've told I've said for years I always had a dream of having two cats and naming them Purim and <laughs> don't steal it don't steal it don't you dare there are only three characters left to really discuss Sid is the engineer now Sid playable Sid's are a tradition in Final <laughs> Fantasy. This is yep. the first one that introduces them. There are, even if they're not playable, SIDs are usually in the game. SID, what, what I love about one of the things I love about Final Fantasy IV is that it localizes a lot of the characters from the same place and they all know each other. Now, now not all of them, but four of them in particular know each other f- since going back to Cecil and Kane's childhood and Rose's childhood. SID. Is an older guy from Baron who's like the engineer. He's the guy who created the airships. Yeah, and he's like a brilliant scientific mind for the Red Wings. And he's a character that you encounter and meet, but then he joins the party, right? And he fights with like a wrench or a hammer, and he also is an important part of the story in terms of he upgrades. You know, he upgrades the airship with mithril and stuff like that to make it more powerful, so it can go underground and and you know and and eventually you know they take the whale or whatever to the moon, but he's a he's an interesting character because he he has familiarity with the protagonists in a way that you know again i said earlier that triumvirate this this the cecil rosa uh kane triumvirate Sid is the only one that knows them and so his inclusion in the party grounds it a little bit definitely yeah great point point. and then there's edge uh I love Edge. Edge is a character so cool that it's disappointing that he comes into the game so late. So late. He is a ninja, and is really the first ninja character in the game. I, I or in the series, I think the coolest ninja character is definitely Shadow. But Edge is, and Shadow's in Final Fantasy VI, and he yeah. has a dog named Interceptor. And there, and the coolest part of Shadow, by the way, is that when you stay with him in an inn in Final Fantasy VI, there's like a one in ten chance that he'll have a dream. And do you know this? No. And there's like a one in 10 chance that he'll have a dream. Like he has, there's like five dream sequences in the game. And it ins- a lot of it insinuates that he's realms dad. So there's a lot of like weird stuff in that game That's, with, with shadow that, you'll ne- that you would
1: never see. I decided during this conversation early on that I'm going back and playing that game next. You Six.
0: should, I think you have my copy of it on uh, GBA. Oh, you I sh- do. You, I do. You should.
1: I do. I do have that. I forgot that I could play it on GBA. I bought That's that
0: as easy. a consolation when I tried to buy a Wii in college and they didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, Edge is a prince, and he's royalty. Uh, there's this family of ninjutsu-using characters, and he watches his parents die, and he has a special attack called throw, and that's something that that's shared, actually, with Shadow in Final Fantasy VI. He can throw pretty much anything. Anything, And some of the things have no effect, but some of them have, like, devastating effect, and there are a few tools. So, you can throw, like, like ninja stars and stuff, and you can throw any of your swords. I love that. But... There are certain weapons like that are like one off weapons that he throws that do like 9,999 damage. He's an extremely powerful character. So cool. And he's a character that like stays in the party basically once you meet him. He's he's basically with you till the end. To the end. There's not an incredible amount of depth to him. He's cocky and arrogant, um, a little brash. He's got a lot of bravado. He knows how good he is at fighting. But you meet him so late that they don't really get to flesh him out.
1: Yeah, he's almost like a Vincent Valentine. You know, you don't get at least initially, you don't get much. He's very cool. And he's powerful, but you don't get much about him. I love. I mean, you, they put a ninja in the game. Like they needed to make it any better. You know, it was like it was already it was already batting a hundred, and then a thousand, and then it just started batting eleven 1, hundred. You know, when they put the ninja in the game. For but, me, yeah. No, I mean, you know, that's, that's I, the, I love. Could, could he throw items like purchased items that you bought as well? I think so. I think he. I think yeah. he could. Oh man, such a good character. I'm not love, sure if there's anything crazy like in 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 six
0: like if you use a phoenix down on the phantom train it kills it in one hit and shit like that there's weird things like that in six i don't know if they got quite that clever with the gameplay yeah they four, didn't get
1: that far yet
0: but yeah i think you could th- i think you can throw anything like i think you oh, can literally go to the menu i and throw forgot anything.
1: about shadow i gotta play six again
0: and then the final character is fusoya yep. who is a Linarian. so in the game the cool thing about the game is that there's three major locations and i don't mean like three towns or anything like that there's the blue planet, the overworld, like the pl- the place where much of the game takes place. There's an underground kind of subterranean area where the dwarves live. There's this dwarf race that it has to get involved in, kind of saving saving everyone's skin as well. Yeah. And you get to kind of explore that. There's like a it's and it's not just that you're going underground and that's it. You, there's like an, a a world map down there, so you get to explore that. And then you go to the moon in an extraordinary leap of faith. You go to the moon on this whale, this like almost whale airship that has its own map as well. And there you meet Fusoya, and he's a Linarian. Now, there are other Linarians, but many of them are like asleep. They're like in this slumber, and they're in a slumber because they're not able to be at peace with their human brethren on the planet, on Earth, so they're wait, awaiting the day when maybe they can break the ice again and figure all of that out, but Fusoya doesn't doesn't want any part of that. Now, earlier I mentioned that Tella, there, Tella wasn't the only character that can use white, white and black magic. Fusoya is the other character that Kenan uses It's a great devastating effect. He's by far the most powerful character in the game, and you meet him extremely late in the game, so it's it's not like you're really able to utilize him in some of the most key parts of the game. Yeah, do you have any memory of him? Because I always felt like he was. I don't. If there's something that I don't like, yeah, about the game, it's an edge borders on this. If they introduce Edward, where they introduce Ed, Edge, for instance, I would not be able to tolerate it. It's just that Edge is so cool. They introduce you. Sh- you shouldn't be introducing new characters into a Japanese role-playing game that takes fifty hours to beat after the halfway point. In my opinion, that was my one problem with it.
1: Yeah, that and that game. This this game does have that. This game reeks of that, actually, because um, you want to get to know these characters better. I remember Fosoya coming late in the game, and I thought that I thought. See, I as I remembered it. I thought Fosoya was first introduced as a bad guy. That then, when Galvez, when Galvez sort of reveals himself, that Fosoya ends up becoming good too. But I guess not. She, he's just automatically playable once you get up there. Like, yeah, he, he's basically he basically catches wind of Zemus's plan. Okay,
0: and has to act has to spring into action pretty suddenly because of it. Okay, he's the one that kind of. No one understands what Golbez is doing until they meet Fusoya and realize that Golbez isn't really the bad guy. Right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Which is really where that element of forgiveness, especially on Cecil's part, kind of comes into the story. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So those are kind of the main characters. And obviously, the, the like I said, the antagonists are Golbez and, and, and Zemus slash Zerimus. Zerimus. They're not really coincidental in terms of their personalities. We're not talking about Kefka-style characters or... Sephiroth or whatever we're talking more about like X death or some of these characters that are more we were talking earlier about avatars for representing something and he represents the necessary evil in the game sure so there's not really much to be said about that but yeah there's there's all of this and I wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the bosses in the game there are these four elemental enemies in the game that are like the this like organization, this group, this like loose collection of, of characters. And there's Rubicant, uh, Barbaricia, Cagnazzo, and Scarmiglione. Each of them represents fire, wind, water, and earth, and you fight them throughout the game. And the beauty of these old sprite-based Final Fantasy games that I love so much, Dagan, and I think you'll appreciate this as an artist, and it drew me in so much as a kid, is you have these very basic sprites that are that like just jump forward attack and move back right and they have very limited animations and they're not really represent you you again you use kind of the 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 avatars in the the menu or you use the instruction manual to kind of illustrate and kind of inform you of what these characters look like sure absolutely but enemies in final fantasy games just like enemies in dragon quest games and enemies in fantasy star games or whatever are usually they're not usually animated but they're 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 these beautiful renditions of them in pixel art and the enemies in Final Fantasy 4 are wonderful, but the enemy, the boss enemies, are so intimidating and so huge. Yeah, compared to everyone me. else, even yeah. Golbez and everyone else, like they're just these gigantic enemies, and they they really inspired something in me. Like I really loved it, you know, as a kid,
1: and so I wanted to give those guys a shout out. Yeah, as well. that was that they were awesome. Yeah, the visuals were a big part of it, and this yeah, the size of the sprites. It was very dramatic. To, whole uh, presentation was very dramatic the other thing that I
0: think is worth mentioning is the active time battle system yeah this was something that was introduced in 4 and, and exists all the way through the Playstation 1 Final Fantasy games they never really change it if you pi- if you picture Final Fantasy 4's contemporaries specifically Dragon Quest 1 2 II, and 3 and Fantasy Star 1 and 2 and some others oh Fantasy Star so sure these are literal turn-based games. Now, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I love turn-based role-playing games. So if you're playing Dragon Quest, the enemy's gonna go, a menu's gonna pop up, and then you can lit- literally let it sit there for five days, and nothing's gonna happen until you, until you make a move. The enemy's not gonna attack you. There's no imminence in it. So it gives you a chance to kind of strategize. It's a little bit of an easier way to play, a little more straightforward. In Final Fantasy IV, they decided to do To undo what they were doing in Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3. And there were some combat changes in Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3 as the games went on that were really interesting. For instance, in Final Fantasy 2, you were leveling up your moves. Like you were leveling up based on what you did, not leveling up just based on experience point accumulation and beating enemies. So there was, they weren't unfamiliar with making changes as changes were needed. But Active Time Battle ATB was basically a fusion of real time battles with turn based battles based on your speed statistic. So what would end up happening is that there was a bar on the on the menus on the bottom of the screen and they would fill up. And when they filled up, you could move and attack. And then the bar would fill up again and so on and so forth. But the speeds of the characters would all be different and the speed of the enemy you're fighting would be different. And you can cast slow or haste or whatever to make it quicker. So it added this active, this quite literally active element to the fight where if you just, if you played it like Dragon Quest and you let the menu just sit there, yeah. you'd die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the enemy would just keep attacking you over and over and over and over again until it was over, so there was no way out of it. So it 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 engaged players, in my opinion, in a way that made it a little less button mashy. If you're if you're running around Dragon Quest and you're trying to farm, you know, gold men and stuff like that to try to earn, you know, gold to to be able to to buy some really great equipment or whatever, it really becomes repetitive. You're just running around the map, spawning random battles, hitting B, getting through the menus, and then doing it over and over again. But th- you have to play this a little bit differently because. You you have to you have to be an active participant. Yes. How did you feel about that? Because because it. you weren't really playing those the
1: contemporaries, so you didn't really know any better. No, I didn't really have a frame of reference. Only in retrospect do I have a frame of reference. But I love it. And as I understand it, they modeled it after Formula One racing, where, in other words, one player could pass another player. They could go at varying speeds. I love having a little more of an active role in. I love having a little more control over the outcome of what's going to happen and how, how fast my character is going to react because it, a role playing game can get, you know, an, a, a traditional role playing game, a turn based RPG, could get a little monotonous, especially when you're grinding. You know, this gives you a little more of a hand in what happens. And it always felt a little more interactive. It feels a little more interactive to me when you go back and play the earlier role-playing games, or the traditional turn-based stuff. That's how, you know, that's how you that's how you do it. But I like the I, I love this and I love the party of five characters too. I always thought five characters was a nice number, you know. It really rounds out your your group, and you could really be more strategic as well. I felt like.
0: Yep. The they it's funny because they move up to five characters in four, but then revert back to four characters starting in five and actually reduce that number in seven to three. So it's right there. There's, you know, the original final fantasy, final fantasy two, final fantasy three are all four character active parties. And it's really in four where part characters are coming in and out. And so they give you five, then they go back to four with five, four with six,
1: three with seven and so on and so yeah. forth. Can so you imagine any more with than three with the materia system. That would, yeah, no, it would have it it drove me after that in my mind. Yeah, would
0: have been it would have been nightmarish. So, I agree with you. There's 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 something. It 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 drives something unique in Final Fantasy IV that no matter it's it, it, no matter its comparison to the Final Fantasy games that came after it or some of the contemporaries that were out, and you really compare it more to Fantasy Star at this point than you would compare it to Dragon Warrior. Yeah, good point. Dragon Quest, in my opinion, because they're really more Fantasy Stars. Battle system is turn based, so it's a little more like Dragon Quest, but it's it's advancing a little bit differently than than the others. Sure, and yeah, I, I I liked it. It didn't seem too crowded, which was cool. Yeah, no, never, and it almost makes, in hindsight, a game like Final Fantasy VII seem a little empty. But I think that part of the reason that they did that was because of the polygonal nature of the game in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. A little bit, a little, the characters were getting bigger, but we were still in four three dimensions, so a little bit of a more limited space. It's similar to how we were saying how that sometimes backfires. I think that backfired heavily in Super Metroid. And I also think that that got close to backfiring in Mega Man X and definitely backfired in Seven, where the character's taking up way too much of the screen. Yeah. It's not like we were in 16.9 yet where there was a lot of room to work with. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. You did want to talk about the music. Sure. Crafted something so emotional. We were listening to it actually earlier when we were kind of writing notes and eating and whatever. And there is something so perfect about the audio accompaniment in the game that I think it's worth. It's absolutely worth mentioning. I'm not a huge music fan uh, in games. I'm a huge music fan in my life. Yeah. but a lot of people often focus on the score and the soundtrack for a game. And I think that's totally worthy. And I think the longer games have gone on, I've often said that in, starting in the PS2 era even, in the PS3 era certainly. Yeah. Music became incredibly unimportant to me. And in fact, there were plenty of games where I would just mute it, you know, or shut the music off and listen to something else because the games got a little more sophisticated music and and many times seemed almost out of place. And there are lots of games that don't even have music. Okay. or, or, Or only accompany certain scenes of music. But yeah, I see what you mean. So, like when you're playing Bioshock or Dead Space or these games that I love, there's really not any music in the game. Right. It's right, because right. it would break the atmosphere. But at this time in the sixteen bit era, music was, was ubiquitous. There were no games where it was just quiet. No. So there were games that really nailed its music, like Act Razor. And there were games that didn't nail its music at all. And I think Final Fantasy Four, and obviously Final Fantasy Six later, I think even enhanced it more. Really, really did a beautiful job. Oh my Final
1: Fantasy Six. Four, four, both of them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're both, yeah, unbelievable. You really needed it, and you really needed it to. If you were going to have a game with this emotional resonance and this kind of story, with only these graphics at your disposal, and only this palette at your disposal, and only these animation capabilities at your disposal, it was it was cool for its time. But you were trying to do a lot with a very limited visual presentation. You needed the music to add that emotional resonance that you were going for. It was so important and it's so it's so heartbreaking. The music it's rousing, it's heartbreaking, it's everything it needs to be at the right time. It's it's such a beautifully scored piece of work, Final Fantasy 4. Final Fantasy 6 is also also unbelievable. But this this is where it started, so that even gives it a little more, you know, importance in my eyes.
0: One other important component of the game I want to talk about is the art. And I'm really interested in what you think of Yoshitaka Amano because Yoshitaka Amano has, in my mind, in my more layman eye, because I'm not an artist, I don't really understand art and movements and stuff like that. I was always fascinated by how abstract in many ways his art was and how they translated it into something that was, for me, appealing And that made sense both in sprite form and in kind of character portrait form what do you make of him because he's considered one of the very great video game artists of all time sure but i also am a little bit confused and maybe you can clear up for me i understand why that is but at the same time i don't really see reflected in the finalized games his art at all so i'm
1: i'm can you can you kind of level with me on that and kind of explain that to me absolutely i mean this is a guy well first of all Yoshitaka Amano's art is not only ahead of its time, but also I think Square, I think a company like Square, a big corporation like Square, having the sophistication to utilize this art to present these very important games, very important to us as gamers, but very important to Square as far as you know being there this is their bread and butter this was this was their bread and butter you know he this is a very traditional thing of like first of all the art the yashitako almano's art is very sophisticated it has a great sense of elegance and a great it, it's it's very emotional and it has a lot of emotional resonance and it also has a great sense of fashion and I think that this was a this was a almost like uh, I I put it in more relatable terms. It's almost like a a Ralph MacQuarie to Star Wars. This was this was inspiring more than what the final character designs was going to be like. It was the bigger picture. It was the feel. It was the emotion. It was the the story of the game. It was it was to inspire the people that were actually developing the actual game. It was and. What became, what it became was over the course of time with Square and the Final Fantasy series was a was a not only a sophistication but a consistency. And I'm always very mindful of the work not only from Final Fantasy four standards, Final Fantasy four, but Final Fantasy six as well. Just gorgeous and so important, and it's almost to the point you can't even imagine these games without having that without having those logos, without having that art in the instruction booklet. Of course, that art couldn't be transcribed to the 16-bit graphics and everything like that. But it was, uh, it was, it was, was, it's much more than that. It's what it's inspiring. It's the emotion, you know, it's, it's the feel, you know, it's the mood board for the whole thing. And it wouldn't be the same without it. It's almost as important. I would say it's as important as the music is.
0: What, what style art is it like? Like I describe it as like he seems to use like it, characters are very thin, yeah, long, Wafy. yep, stretched out. Like you said, stylish, like high style, like like jewelry and these very very complicated prints on their clothes. And yeah, where does that come from? I I, I often wonder, I because I don't know the story and I don't necessarily know you do that you do either, and you don't have to tell it if you do. But oh, that's okay. Where? I'm often wondering, because like the, the the analog to this is Akira Toriyama. Yeah. With Dragon Quest. And Akira Toriyama, who obviously was more famous even for Dragon Ball. But you can, with his art in Dragon Quest, even though, again, it couldn't translate well to 8 or 16 or even 32-bit graphics, depending on what game you're talking about, you could see where artists, artists at Enix translated what Akira Toriyama did into the game, and it made way more sense to me. Like, there was more of a parallel there. Yeah, yeah. When I often would see a mono art, and I was... It, it, Ralph Macquarie is a great parallel, because when I go through Star Wars art books, I'm like, I have no idea how
1: anyone got anything How did you get movie. from A to yeah, C? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. How did you get to... How did you make it, you know, arrive here? And that maybe
0: is... that Maybe that shows an incredible ignorance on my part, but I... I see how you go from step A to step B with, with Akira Toriyama and yeah. Dragon Quest. I really do struggle because even I think is extremely talented. I love that art. I think yeah, it's, it's awesome. Be, it's but beautiful. when I look at pictures of like Kane or I look at pictures of Porum and Palam, I'm like, I don't I don't even know like what this is compared to the characters in the game. Because you say that they can't translate them into the sprites, which is true, but you would think that they would translate them to the character portraits, but they don't even do
1: that. Right. You know what's you know what's I mean, you yeah. There so, has to be a reason for that. Yeah. Well, you know what it is. With it's a great point, Colin. I'm glad you're bringing it up because he he's such an important part of the games. And I wasn't even going to go there, even though I have it. Of course, I have his name written down here. He's he's a great and important character designer and illustrator. And I think his stuff really feels like fashion design illustration to me. Fashion design illustration when when it was still being drawn in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He's and he's an older man, and but the thing about Yoshitako, the thing about the whole thing with Yoshitako Amano and his his work in Final Fantasy is oftentimes on a project, on an animated project, on a film, on a TV an animated TV show in a video game, there's always character designers that come in and set the stage. And it always it always starts with a thought, with a sketch, and once you're done and once you have your final product, you could trace it back like a Ralph Macquarie and you could say, wow, this is such a departure from where it began. With Yoshitako Omano, it is strange that he—it his stuff almost feels like those initial, initial musings, those initial, initial drawings, sketches, thoughts, doodles, whatever – that would come would have to come a long way to arrive at that final project. But here's his stuff on the box art. And here's his stuff in the instruction booklet. So it is very, it always spoke to me because it really is, not only is it sort of a courageous choice on squares on squares side of things, but it also shows a great sophistication to, to make it, to make it, especially when you're selling things to kids, you know, it even struck me, I I would even question it in college, and his art is really beautiful, but Akira Toriyama is a perfect, a a perfect comparison, you know, you're getting, you're getting, what you're, he's illustrating these, he has such a, a notable style, you know it's his stuff, but his art looks, even when he does a sketch, it's the final, it looks like what, The art that's going to be on the box. It looks like the art that's going to be in the instruction booklet. It looks like the final sprite art in the game. Yoshitako Amano's stuff is so raw and such an inception point that you would think on a normal project, and oftentimes it's true, on a normal project there would be so many iterations starting with his stuff that would eventually be carved down and whittled and sculpted into the final thing, where his thing feels like the initial thing, and his initial thing's on the final thing. So it was always very striking, and maybe that was the idea because that is such a different approach. It's a very bold approach, but it works. And it might work for a combination of things. It might work because it is really beautiful. And it might work because especially it feels beautiful like the games are beautiful. Especially, I'm thinking of especially a 4 and 6. It, his stuff just works. And some smart creative directors at Square realize that. And they, get, they should get as much credit as Amano for, for vetting the art and making that the art direction as much as he did for illustrating the art. It's a very bold thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because it gave me a chance to think that through because it always was very striking. And even in college, we would talk about it, you know, and I love that you bring up Akira Toriyama because he's very, they're contemporaries and they have such a different approach. But they're involved in the same projects, right? For the same, oftentimes for the same companies. There's this adult thing. There's this,
0: there's this, there's this adult feel to to Amano that Toriyama doesn't have. Like you said, there's there's just fewer moving parts with Toriyama, but and neither, neither is better or worse. I think Toriyama is probably much more famous and much richer and more wealthy than Amano because of the way he draws. And obviously, Dragon Ball was huge, but. You're right, like, it, it almost, it. when I look at the art, I, I I hate to keep referencing 6 because we're not talking about 6 and I don't want to talk about it until we're ready to go, but yeah, I often think about Terra in the Magitek armor, the art that Amano made for that, I is was so striking. It. it is. And almost haunting, in a way. And you can see a parallel between that and what they get in the game, like the Magitek armor itself, not even Terra. You can kind of see that he designed that, and that that kind of more faithfully made it in. And again, there was a more of a sophistication with the art by the time 1994 rolled around than in 1991, because the game, you know, Final Fantasy IV came out in July 91 in Japan and November 91 in the states, right before Christmas. So we were, again we were talking about more primitive times, and they started developing this game. This was their first foray into the Super Nintendo, so they might have had a hard time kind of translating in that way too. Sure, but I. I appreciate his art as well and it was sad for a lot of Final Fantasy fans when he stopped
1: doing the art for the games. You know, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if he decided to leave or square wanted to move on or whatever it was, but I know he's a fine artist. And you know what else, Kyle? I think I don't know that Amano was ever I think he he's he was he's almost as old as mom and dad as far as I know. I don't know that he was ever a fashion designer although his work smacks of fashion design. But I think if I'm not mistaken, he was involved in the theater. Um, set design maybe but certainly as a costume designer and that really that's really evident in his work he has a very he has a very distinctive flair for apparel and clothing and fashion and his work just feels like that there's a flowiness you you said there's a there's a there's a like a wafiness and an airiness and i think you said i think you said it great you know i'm glad we got a chance to talk about that it's a really important part of these games yeah it
0: is and it is and it, it's a, it brings a sophistication to the product that that grounds it and makes it, it we often have this con you know we, we talked about how it's inherent that games are art and i think that we all you know it was it was a it was a debate really that was begun by the late great roger ebert about if video games are art this was a this was a big contention with him he, he really didn't respect video games at all and it was it was a which was confusing to me because you think he would be one of the few people outside yeah, of the games that would get it, get but he it. just didn't, and that's too bad for him, not for us. But you can see how the cartoony nature of Toriyama would make it would remind a parent or remind a passerby or a layman that oh, this is an anime, this is this is this isn't high art or anything like that, and you you can see Amano's art in a in a museum, you know. So yeah, there, absolutely, so there's I'm not saying Toriyama
1: wouldn't belong in a museum, but he. It's different. Draw, it, it's it's car. It's a cartoon, right? It's it is definitely different. And you know what? I think it's fair to say too that on Square's behalf, I think this is fair to say when they were selling these games to fifteen-year-olds with this guy's art on it. That was pretty bold. You know, it almost transcended. It was almost defying. Like this game is so. When, it's much easier to sell to a 15-year-old when you have – let's be honest. It's much easier to sell to a 15-year-old when you have anime or Toriyama's art on a project. That's what a 15-year-old wants to buy. That it's, it's comic book. It's manga. It's anime, right? Now, nerdum has grown. And I think it's fair to say that. Now, the guys – the average age of somebody buying a video game now is probably older than it was in the early 90s. I think it's fair to say that.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the, old, the conventionalism is that every year that passes video, the average
1: gamer gets a year older. Which so, is so if you look at it that yeah. way, right, the fact that this stuff was on the packaging and this is what was selling the game the, you know marketing and packaging that's very important to, that's a that's gonna come that's gonna drive sales and they this stuff wor- people bought the games with this guy's art on it it was really bold it was bold on everybody's behalf, not only a mono and square but the buyer as well Every you have to kind of tip your cap to everybody involved
0: absolutely and we you know and we here in the states. Didn't get a mono art on the box until until Final Fantasy three, like and and even then it was like very minimal. I think it was I think it was Mog sitting on the Final Fantasy three logo or something. It It wasn't even the the box art as I remember for Final Fantasy six because I have a copy of Final Fantasy six in Japanese. Is it's it's Terra in the Magitek armor. That's right. And it's like a white cover. And in, in the United States, Final Fantasy three, as we knew Final Fantasy VI then, was like this purple cover. Final Fantasy II's was like pink. Yeah. And Final Fantasy II's art was just the logo. But I think Final Fantasy III's art had Mog sitting on it or mog on no, the No, you're right. That's or leaning
1: has, on it or something that. Like was that. the first one. And I that think that, that was
0: a little taste of his art. Yeah. But that was like the most, when you look at the art from that game, that was like the most accessible art. It's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So a different market. And, and 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 really shows a lack of sophistication for the SNES market at the time in the states, but when you know there were, it was because Final Fantasy ones art on NES was just a black box with like a shield and said Final right. Fantasy on it, right. definitely not a model's art. So so yeah, that's uh, Final Fantasy two slash four yes sir if you guys are interested in playing this game and i highly recommend you do if you haven't there's a lot of different ways you can play it you can of course procure the snes original cartridge but there's cheaper and easier ways for you guys to play it if you want to get final fantasy i think it's final again i always confuse this i never look it up either i just don't care enough i guess (laughs) final fantasy anthology or chronicles look it up on ps1 has a copy of final fantasy 4 it comes with chrono trigger depending on the version you get and the chrono trigger um Port is really bad, so be wary of that. You can also play it on GBA. There's a DS version of Final Fantasy IV that's a remake and it's for the 20th anniversary of the game. It's and I don't know if how you feel about this. I am so sick of this fucking really trash 3D art. I, I am so sick of it. People people look at this art and like, look how good it looks. I'm like, this the Final Fantasy IV on, on DS stripped all of the spirit out of it. Oh, yeah. And for this really generic looking, trashy looking polygonal art that I, I mean, it, the game holds up. And actually, the gameplay in that version is really hard. So that's cool because we actually got a pretty reduced difficulty version specifically on the SNES. I think they repaired that on the GBA. But I hate that art, man. Like, I, I fucking hate it. Yeah. I, I, I'm really over this ugly, cheap looking 3D art when we have these beautiful square. Square Enix has this really bad habit of just ruining shit. And they did it with Chrono Trigger. They did it with Final Fantasy VI and and stuff on PC on Steam. Okay. By giving these, by updating the graphics. Like, they're still sprites, but they're 3D sprites, and they, they, they're, they're, they pop, and it's like... What do no you think gr- of the Secret of Mana remake? I, I played it on Vita. It's, it's, it's awful. And it really reminds me of... Like, it's bad. Yeah, you don't like it. No. And it really, I, it, it made me think that Secret of Mana was never very good, but I just don't know if that's true. That's like a, an inner dilemma I'm having, like, where I'm like, this is so bad in yeah. ways that I'm like was this game ever good? I liked it a lot, but it was very I divisive even when it came out. I did. I liked it too. So there was it was a, it was I was like I don't really understand what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. No one wants this. You know, no one no one wants no one wants the game like this. They want the game the way they remember it those those graphics are beautiful and they're way more they take way more talent to render those graphics than they do this cheap fucking 3d graphic you know that you made in flash or something like that
1: yeah it's not it's trying to modernize something it doesn't need to be modernized and and you know what it's trying to appeal to the younger audience and it's not trusting that audience the kids are smart today i I, i'll put it to you like this if we we were kind of idiots growing up if if We were on the 16-bit generation and playing those games and somebody tried to shove an Atari game at us. We'd be like, what the hell is this shit? We wouldn't appreciate the historical aspect of it or try to give it. But kids today are, for whatever reason, I really do feel like kids today are smarter. They're more in touch with what came, largely, more in touch with what came before and they... They want to know the roots of things. I mean, there is the the, the thing of retro gaming being a lot bigger now than it is what, than it was in the past. but trust you trust people to, you know, to, to give it a shot. Don't feel like you always have to modernize everything and try to make it something something else. It's not that. Make something else. Right, exactly. You know? Exactly.
0: So. Yeah, just stop ruining shit. And, and that's what they're doing with Final Fantasy VII now, where they're making this really... You know, they had Cyber Connect 2 for a while, and now they've brought it in-house at Square Enix to make the Final Fantasy VII remake, and I, that game's never coming out, it's in my point. opinion. But but it's... Yeah, it's it's just like, again, having played Final Fantasy VII recently, as it was originally intended, I'm like, this is fine. It doesn't... The polygonal era, as I've said many times, PS1 and 64 era is a terrible era for graphics. But it is what it is. And just... They, no one can leave... It's what we were talking about in many conversations during Knockback. No one can leave anything alone.
1: Everything has to just be upgraded, touched, retouched. Because you don't have to re-imagined. think about it. Reimagined. No. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to, to sit down and brainstorm a new story, God forbid, you know, or a new a new approach to something or invent something, you know.
0: Right, exactly. So I would say from my from dollars to donuts, if you guys really wanted to play this game in, a, in the most accessible way, I would track down that GBA version of the game. I think that, that would be the easiest, and most effective way, because you could play it in... You can play it in a GBA, you can play it in a DS, and you know, and there are other ways. I, I, I the SNES version of the game is a little bastardized. You're probably not even going to find a version of it with a working battery. But oh, that's a good point. Virtual console is another option. Yeah, virtual console. I'm not yeah, the, sure. the Final Fantasy II, the SNES version is on Wii and Wii U, I think, and 3DS maybe or yeah. DS. I don't know. I don't know. You, you guys can go look it up. There's. I just want to encourage you to play it if you if you've enjoyed this podcast, but you haven't played it or you're looking to play it again. You have some options. It's wonderful. So let's wrap
1: it up, Dick. Okay, we'll do the speed round. It's a quick one. It's okay. late, so okay. we'll do a quick one. Okay. Okay. Here we go. No wrong answers. Final Fantasy four or Final Fantasy six? Six. Cecil or Cain? Cecil. Fight or run? Fight. Fire or ice? Fire. That's incorrect. Okay. <laughs> Ridia or Rosa? Ridia. Param or Palum? Palum. Best character in the entire game of Final Fantasy IV? Palum. Oh, good answer. Moon or Earth? Earth. Sid or Sid or Sid? The middle Sid. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> That's you. correct. Thank you. Cecil or Cloud? Cecil. Titan or Leviathan? Leviathan. Meteor or Jump? Jump is much more sophisticated, so I'm going to go with jump. All right, good. That's correct.
0: Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Dagan, thank you so
1: much. Thank you, sir. That was a
0: fun conversation. That was a lot of fun. Thank you all out there for listening. Remember, you can follow us on social media. I am on Twitter at No Taxation. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973. You can find me on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. You can find Dagan on Instagram at Dagan Likes to draw. Remember, if you like Knockback or the other CLS shows, the other Collins Last Stand shows, whether they're SideQuest, Fireside Chats, or this here, Knockback, please do consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand if you can afford it. Every dollar we get there helps and allows us to continue to do this show. But of course, if you can't afford that or you're not inclined to do that, you can continue to enjoy the product free of charge, and I hope you continue to do just that.
1: Go ahead and jump. <laughs> <laughs> Jump. Jump! Nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great minds think alike. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thank you so much. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alois, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Bloedel, Mark Boggio, David Buford, Spencer Bran, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Jay Chandarlis, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Philip Crone, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanicos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fiore, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, David Gurley, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Stephen Insler, Josh Yeager. Paul Joyce, Benjamin Kane, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mootkar, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Andrew O, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Ateno Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, James Schmetz, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Ryan Scheinabarger, Toby Schutman. German Sidhu, Alex Simmons, Riley Smith, Jordan Smith, Jared Stawave, Alexander Suarez, Ahmed Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Ekren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Payne White, Tyler Woodall, Benjamin Worrell, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Madmock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Chris, Donk 2015, and Random Guy Radio.